Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 to 12, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Pride and Humility. North American culture is obsessed with self-praise. You can do anything you want, we tell people. Trust in yourself. You can do it. Don't let anyone tell you you can't. You can be the best you that you can be. I mean, slogans like that. I know of one religious teacher in North America, extremely large church, that majors in that kind of thing, simply filling people's heads with thoughts of greatness. And the hungry human soul drinks it all in. Well, I recently read an article in a journal. Let me quote it. It says, you're probably familiar with a famous survey that reported that more than 80% of respondents said they were above average drivers, even though that's mathematically impossible. And even though all the respondents had at some point in their lives been injured in car accidents. In fact, another study found that fewer than 1% of respondents considered themselves worse than average. You know, findings like that are easy to laugh at until you realize that most people think they're above average at almost everything. A meta-analysis of a number of studies shows that people rate themselves as above average in creativity, intelligence, dependability, athleticism, honesty, friendliness, and on and on. Provide people with a survey about almost any trait and the vast majority will rate themselves above average. Social psychologists call it better than average effect. Ask me to rate myself in anything, in terms of basically anything, and I'll be convinced I'm above average, even though I'm clearly not, end quote. Listen, half of us are below average. I know some of you are shocked to hear about that. Below average intelligence, below average athleticism, below average creativity. I dare that same preacher to stand before his congregation, tell them the truth, that half of you that are listening to me are less than average. And he'll never do that, even though it's true. As Jack Nicholson once said in a movie, you can't handle the truth. It's called pride. James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The entire nature of our faith begins with this matter. I confess I'm a sinner. I confess I've fallen short of the glory of God. I confess that my best righteous deeds are as filthy rags before God. I don't know if you've noticed it, but the Christian faith is meant to strip you of your pride and place you in a place where you're going to have to repent of your evil and express your helplessness to change and save yourself, and then to give you faith, complete dependence on God for His purposes in your life. And that's all for His glory, but it's for your long-term good. And when we come to Matthew 23, we're going to find that I would think is the most condemning denunciation of a group of people anyone's ever read. So much so that I remember reading one critic of Matthew 23 saying, you know, after he'd read the passage, he'd come to the conclusion, Jesus is not loving. No loving person, he said, would speak in such a shocking way. But while the language that we might hear in this chapter is shocking, let's not forget that God hates pride. And Jesus is expressing the attitude of God towards human pride. Listen, you want to ensure that God's your enemy? Well, then be proud. 
Teach other people also to be proud. Make pride a virtue. Make humility a failing. Do that, God will be your enemy. In our study of Matthew 21 to 25, we've watched Jesus in a dispute with the chief priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Now a great many of them are gone, and he turns to the people who have heard the disputes. I have to think that some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're still watching. And as they watch, the crowd listens. But Jesus is speaking to the crowds about the Pharisees. I'm going to call this a diatribe. So let's read the first 12 verses of Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, we notice that Jesus is speaking both to his disciples and the crowd. In that, we might think of him speaking to those who are, let's say, theologically well-informed and committed followers, but he's also speaking to the common worshiper who has come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The application of that should be plain. See, there are any number of people who are interested in worship, but they know very little about theology. And so they easily move from one teacher to another. They're impressed by shows of authority. They, they love to sample a little here, then a little there, having no or almost no idea what it is that they're listening to. And it's to these vulnerable and ignorant people that Jesus speaks. He's speaking about the scribes and the Pharisees. And I made mention before that scribes is a general rule. They were all Pharisees, but certainly not all Pharisees were scribes. Scribes were a specialized group within the Pharisaical community. And nevertheless, Jesus singles out the scribes as a specialized group because many thought of them as the elite. Notice how Jesus begins. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. I mean, traditionally, teachers in those days, when they taught, would sit down. I know in our day, we traditionally stand when teaching, not so then. But when they sat to teach, they claimed to sit on Moses' seat. That is, they were, they said, spokesmen for Moses. They taught Moses. They were known as the authoritative teachers of Moses. Now, what comes next seems genuinely surprising because Jesus says, so do and observe what they tell you. That doesn't seem to make any sense. See, Jesus is saying, you need to obey every last word they tell you to. And we say, really? I mean, up till now in his ministry, he's been saying the opposite. I mean, consider what he said, and this recorded in Mark 7, 9 to 13. And he said to them, that is, to the Pharisees. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely be put to death. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is korban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition or your teaching that you have handed down. And many such things you do. That is, 
Up till now, Jesus has been saying, the things the Pharisees have taught, well, they've preferred their own oral traditions to the scriptures. They regularly teach people to disobey the word of God. Even though, as we've seen, that Jesus agreed on some issues with the Pharisees, that includes the resurrection of the dead, and yet he's constantly said, you know, these people contradict scripture. So how could he now say in Matthew 23, the very opposite, do and observe everything they tell you to do. Now, there are those who argue that, that this, that is, in Matthew 23, that there must have been a mistake here. Or others argue that maybe Matthew added this later at some point in time when the Christian church was trying to make peace with the Pharisees, so he slipped this kind of a teaching in somehow to pacify them. It simply won't do to talk that way. What we have from the pen of Matthew is a direct quote from Jesus. Matthew is determined not to pacify people in the present, but to tell them what Jesus said, did, and taught. So how do we understand what Jesus said? Well, the obvious answer is that this is irony. You understand the concept of irony? We use irony when we say something which is the opposite of what we mean. I use some examples. I mean, they're provided by Daniel Doriani, but here's one example. We might look out on a very rainy day. It's a virtual downpour, and we might say, this is a great day for a picnic. Well, we don't actually mean it's a great day for a picnic, do we? We mean the very opposite, but everyone knows what it is that we're saying. Here's the other example from Mark Antony, when he made a speech in the Roman Senate where he was lamenting the murder of Julius Caesar. Three times in Mark Antony's speech, he says, Brutus the honorable man, and yet everything else that he says in the speech contradicts that Brutus is an honorable man at all. So he's using Brutus the honorable man as irony. It's ironic that Brutus should be referred to as honorable. It's also ironic that the scribes and the Pharisees should be called men who sit in Moses' seat, who should be obeyed in everything they say, even while their behavior is anything but exemplary. It's ironic that this is what they claim for themselves. It's also what they ask others to do. But that's like saying Brutus is an honorable man. No, no, we should not do what the Pharisees tell us to do. Every year, Back to the Bible works hard to bring you resources that engage your thoughts in the Bible. This month, we've created a very special book that we think will become part of a Christmas tradition for many families. It's our Laugh Again 12 Days of Christmas Stories, 12 of Phil Calloway's favorite Christmas stories, 12 readings from the Bible of the actual Christmas story, all designed to prepare our hearts for the occasion of Jesus' arrival. Use for your personal devotions, around the dinner table, or at night with the kids, perhaps before they go to bed. 12 Days of Christmas Stories is a full-color, fun, and thoughtful book that will engage both young and old in the real meaning of Christmas. So request your free copy during the month of November in preparation for the Christmas season as our Christmas gift to you. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. Irony. You know, on the one hand, Jesus says, do everything they tell you to do, even though in verse 4, he says, they place burdens on people that are too heavy to bear, and they slam the door of the kingdom in the face of many. See, it's irony. 
The last thing we should do is to do the things that they tell us to do. It's with this biting irony that Jesus starts. There are three reasons why you don't want to do what the Pharisees tell you. First, even they don't do what they tell you to do. And how telling is that? See, I remember as a kid, I had an uncle. He was an alcoholic. And as well, he was a chain smoker. I remember once I was a young teenager, you know, having him give me a lecture on the importance of saying no to drugs. Well, I was going to say no to drugs regardless of what he said, but it was rich, I thought, to have this man who's unable to say no to any of the substances that are killing him to tell me to refuse harmful substances. But that was the Pharisees. Look at what Jesus says of them. Verse 3b, they preach but do not practice. And that's called hypocrisy. I suppose the most obvious example of that is the sixth command. It's the command that prohibits murder. But even then, these hypocrites, the Pharisees, were planning to murder Jesus. Hypocrisy has always been one of the chief problems for those who hold a position of religious teachers. They warn against greed while they become rich by bilking their followers. They teach sexual faithfulness to one's spouse, yet they're involved in sexual sin. They teach dignity of all those who are made in the image of God, and yet they treat the weakest and most vulnerable with condescension. It's called hypocrisy. And the strange thing about hypocrisy is that the hypocrite seldom sees it in himself or herself. But others often notice it very quickly. At least they do if they bother to look. Now comes the second reason why we won't want to listen to the Pharisees. They offer no liberty, only burdens. That is, what advantage would there be in following a teaching that does not set you free? Look again at verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Well, contrast that with what Jesus taught. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So why is Jesus' yoke easy and the yoke of the Pharisees is heavy and more than can be borne, a yoke that eventually crushes those who attempt to bear it? And the answer was that the Pharisees had built, in their own words, a hedge around the law. See, in order not to break any of the hundreds of commands, they made additional commands to keep you from breaking the other commands. So the easy example we all know is the Sabbath. All manner of extra laws regarding how far you are allowed to walk, to what constituted work, the traditions went on and on. And over against all of that was the disapproving scowl of those same men. In contrast, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And for the Sabbath, he said, and all the commands of God were meant to liberate, not to bind one over. It's a difference between thinking that you have to do certain things to gain God's favor or that God is favoring you by giving you free in commands. And the third reason you don't want to listen to the Pharisees, I, these people are obsessed with the applause of others. Everything they do is done for the sake of looking good. It's sad and pathetic. Verses 5 to 7, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, being called rabbi by others. Let me explain this matter of phylacteries. They're small leather cases or boxes, and they hold slips of paper on which there are scriptures written. 
That is, these were scriptures that they were to memorize, scriptures they wanted to make sure they never forgot. Now, these little boxes, you know, with scripture in them, they're fastened using leather straps, and they'd be strapped or put in a box or a satchel on your forehead or wrapped around your arm. And there is where the hypocrisy showed up. The Pharisees were given to widening the leather straps to make them more pronounced. So, you know, did they widen them because, you know, the narrow ones wouldn't hold the pouch? No, no, no. They widened them so that even if they're a long way off, you could see them wearing this stuff. See, that is, these men made a show of looking pious. It's not that they were concerned with being pious. They were concerned with looking pious. I mean, think of what Jesus taught about prayer. He said that the hypocritical Pharisees loved to stand and pray in the synagogues and even at the street corners. Others would see them there doing that. Instead, he told his followers to go into an enclosed room where no one could see them except God and there pour out their hearts to God. See, there's something about religion that lends itself well to externals. Of course, you know, we are to pray in public. But what if that's all there is? Public prayer and our private communication with God is in ruins. All show is for others, nothing of substance. External religion is that religion that really is about the praise of others rather than the praise of God. So ask yourself this, if all the public praise for your faith dried up tomorrow so that there's no one left who praises you anymore, would it make any difference for you in your relationship with God? Would you carry on just as you had before? See, in the case of the hypocritical Pharisees, the answer is no, no. They do this for the prestige it gives them, not because they're seeking the face of God. No, no, they're seeking the face of men. They're seeking the face of human approval, the roar of the crowd, the chatter of all men speaking well of them, the thrill of having a following, the honor of being quoted, their name engraven on buildings, their names remembered in history. That's what they want. Now, Jesus then takes these three criticisms of the Pharisees. They don't do what they command of others. They're a burden to others. They do nothing to relieve the burden. And they delight in the glory of being the subject of the praise of people. And now he takes this and makes it personal. Rather than simply condemning the Pharisees, here's what he tells his followers. Look again at verses 8 to 10. Verse 8, you're not to be called rabbi. Verse 9, you're not to be called father. Verse 10, you're not to be called instructor. Now, those verses make it sound as if no one is to receive any title at all. But if that's what Jesus meant, then it becomes quite clear that his followers didn't obey him. That's because Peter, 1 Peter 5, 1, he calls himself an elder and then also a pastor. In fact, in the beginning of 1 Peter, he also calls himself an apostle. See, Peter took a number of titles, and so did Paul, who frequently insisted that people recognize him as an apostle. And furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, we learn that there's a hierarchy in the church. The apostles are first, the prophets are second, the pastors and teachers, yeah, those very teachers, the one that Jesus said should never take a title, they're third. Then comes everybody else. It turns out that titles were used in the early church. Every local church had men who were called elders. They also had people, they were called deacons. So what gives? I mean, how do we understand this? I think since Jesus has been condemning the Pharisees, he means that we must never use the titles in the way the Pharisees used their titles. Let me explain that. See, I can't tell you how often when I was a pastor, I I went to a banquet and somebody there, and sometimes more than one person insisted 
that I shouldn't stand in line with everybody else to get food. Someone says, you know, no, no, pastor, you shouldn't have to stand in line with the rest of us. See, there's a temptation that comes when I heard that. And it was the temptation to agree and to say, yeah, I shouldn't have to stand in the line with the rest of you guys. You know, I remember years ago going to a Christian mechanic to have my car serviced. And after I came to pick it up, he said, no, no, pastor, this one's on me. You don't have to pay. I said, I insist. So we argued. I paid. And then I found out a few months later, he had gone bankrupt. See, he was insisting that he pay for servicing my bill, even while he didn't have the money to do it. I assumed that he must have thought it was improper to ask a pastor to pay. Look, I'm not saying that we shouldn't honor those who work at preaching and teaching. The Bible does tell us to do that. See, here's what's forbidden, is for any person to use their title in the service of God to get favors for themselves. See, with that, Jesus ends the section. Whoever exalts himself is going to be humbled. I need to hasten to add here that sometimes, by the mercy of God, a person can be humbled in this life. That is, they've been a public minister and are being humbled in this life. It's a severe mercy from God. Allows the religious leader to reconsider his ways and to repent, to say, God, I thought that being a pastor or a teacher, that I should be given favors and privileges from others. I was sinful. Instead, I now see that if I wish to be your child, that my pathway is one of humility. I should have thought of myself not as the greatest, but as the least, not as the elite, but as the servant. I misunderstood. I forgot that you washed the feet of others and you had called me to servitude, not to being served by what I thought were lesser Christians. Oh God, forgive me. Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you, can you help me understand or give me a better sense of the place of servant leadership in the church? Yeah, it's very important that we don't replace either one of those words. So let me start with the word leadership. To say servant leadership does not mean that we're not looking for people to lead. It is important to have leaders, leaders that set direction and that leaders that ask people to follow. We need to allow people to lead rather than cutting them off constantly. So leadership is required. Now, what makes leadership servant leadership is that the person who leads leads for the benefit of the ones being led. He has not his own interests in mind, but the interests of the people whom he's leading. And I think that's what makes it servant leadership. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Everyone has a story. We all come from a beginning and an end. And while it may go largely unnoticed by the world around us, God knows our story and he invites us to unite our story with his. The story of Jesus is not simply something we read. It's a drama which invites preparation and participation. We participate by faith and obedience. So thank you for your prayers and financial support that you offer this ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to telling the whole story of God with consistent, clear teaching of the Bible. Your support ensures the truths of God's Word are taught daily. 
we ask you to consider a gift to support Bible teaching this month, perhaps for the first time, or by becoming a monthly partner. To give a gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.